people will show up on a demo and they understand what the most important thing is. And like in a competitive situation in particular, you don't have to win on every single battlefront. There might be five things that matter to the customer, four of them that eh, they're all right. And one that's like the number one thing. And you might lose to a bunch of competitors on the four, but if you win on the one, you're actually gonna win the deal. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Nick Sigelski and Armand Farouk. Nick is an AE at Time by Ping. Armand is head of sales at PAVE. And together, they are the hosts of the 30-Minute to President's Club podcast. So in our conversation today, we start out with Nick and Armand giving us the background about how and why they started their popular podcast. And then we go deep into the topic of the day, discovery, which is one of my favorite sales topics to talk about. We start by discussing whether discovery calls are really even a thing. I mean, is there a discovery call or stage in your sales process? Or is discovery something that occurs throughout your buying process, throughout the selling process? We also dive into how to prepare for a discovery conversation. And then we get into how to ask the questions that reveal your buyer's most important priorities and how to make sure that you get to the real truths with your buyers. Now, before we get to Nick and Armand, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate if you could leave us a review, let us know how we're doing. We'd appreciate it. So thank you very much. All right, let's jump into it. Nick and Armand, welcome. Happy to be here, Andy. Beyond stoked. We're going to try to be as as good of a guest as you were, Andy. I I think we're going to fail, unfortunately. I don't know. I think I set a low bar for you. So you're... You're great. You're great. So for people who don't know you guys, you guys are the hosts of 30 Minutes to President's Club podcast, which I was honored to be a guest on. So um, tell us a little about yourself, like individually, Nick. So tell us when you're not hosting a podcast, what are you doing? Uh, When I'm not hosting a podcast, I'm uh, on the wrestling mat with Armand trying to encourage him not to cry because I'm beating him. No, not really. Um, <laughs> let's see. I live in L.A., but not center L.A. I live in Pasadena. Uh, I'm actually a salesperson when I'm not talking to people on a podcast. Uh, and Armand and, and I have a wonderful storied history. Actually, the wrestling thing was because he and I were wrestling training partners at USC uh, like a decade ago. And that's how we got to know each other. And so we decided to go from punching each other in the face on the wrestling mat to getting punched in the face day in and day out in our sales jobs. And then we talk about that stuff on our podcast sure. together. So who do you sell for and what do you do? Uh, I work for a company called Ping. It's a legal tech company that helps lawyers mm-hmm. not have to track their time anymore. And how does that work? Uh, it tracks what they do on the computer and creates their timesheet for them. So if you think about like what a lawyer has to do, mm-hmm. every six minutes they have to take account of the thing that they are doing in that moment, right. which – is a massive distraction from actually getting the job done, but it's how they build their clients. And so what Ping does, instead of the attorney telling the computer, here's what I did today, the computer at the end of the day gives them an output saying, hey, here's how you spent your time by integrating with their phone system, their Outlook calendar, their email, et cetera. So it's kind of fun. It's a really niche space selling into legal tech, Um, totally different than what Armand does, but it actually helps because we um, end up complementing each other with like strategies and tactics. Got it. Okay, so you guys met at USC, I see. Um, sorry about your football team this year. Yeah, the game that mattered really was just happened last weekend, I think, right? What was the score of that one? Who played? 
we played against Stanford. And oh, yeah, I that's right. It was actually the most successful game we ever played because it allowed us to fire our coach. So oh, gosh, a glass is half full guy. I like that. I like Andy's, that. Andy's rubbing it in. Andy's got a Stanford background, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Anytime we can beat the University of Spoiled Children, it's a, it's a great day. So, um, I don't know if you know, but that's what we used to call it back in the day. So, um, Armand, tell us about yourself. All righty. So, uh, Let's see, where do I start? I have a score pad here, and Nick has gotten me to one insult. We'll see how many, uh, we'll see who wins the insult battle today. But uh, uh, let's see. So naturally also college wrestling teammate with Nick back in the day. Came Mm -hmm. from a slightly different background. And so I sold insurance as my first experience out of college. And it uh, it was titled financial representative. And I remember I wanted to be in finance. And so I was like, great, sounds like an awesome finance internship. And then I got to the end of the interview process and they're like, all right, so you're going to make 200 cold calls a week and you're going to sell insurance. And I was like, oh, this isn't finance. But I was a little bit clueless. So I was like, I guess I'm going to do this thing. And so I started with well, let's, selling. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. So yeah. was this personal insurance or business insurance? This was personal Wealth management, life insurance. So okay. cold calling partners of law firms and what have you, trying to get them to spend $30,000 a year of savings with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was an exciting thing as a five, six uh, awkward brown man coming out of college. It was, right. a, it was a very enriching experience. But believe it or not, there's a, a cold call opener that I'm known for called the Heard the Name Tossed Around Opener. And it all originated there. And frankly, most of my sales tactics actually come from way back in the insurance days, learning from some of the most world-class salespeople I ever met um, that never worked in SaaS. And I so, had any well, time. tell us about this world-class opening. Yeah. Well, so essentially what happens is uh, the, the two most common cold call openers are, hey, did I catch you at a bad time or how's your day going? Mm-hmm. Right. And so number one, did I catch you at a bad time? Andy, you know, it's never a good time. I've never, never had somebody ever say, yes, it's a good time. Yeah. Or if we say, hey, uh, how's your day going? How's your day going? How's your day going? I say it 50 times a day. And guess what? Every time someone picks up a cold call, they hear, how's your day going? They're like, Yeah. All right. How can I help you? And they know it's a telemarketer. Sure. And so I was cold calling and I was ripping these dials and I was like, how's your day going? How's your day going? And I just got torn up by law firm partners. And so this top producer walks down the aisle. He goes, hey, Armand, no one's going to listen to you like that. I was like, thanks, man. Really helpful advice. He's like, what I would do is if I were you, I would call up all the different law firm partners and I would say, hey, I work with a couple of your partners down the office. It's it's Brendan over at Northwestern. Have you heard my name passed around? And that's the cold call opener. And so mm-hmm. immediately what I started doing is I was like, all right, I'm going to lower my baseline tone a little bit. I'm going to play it a little bit cool. And I'm going to act like I already work with a bunch of people like that. Right. And I'm going to say, hey, you know, Andy, I work with a couple of your partners down the office. It's uh, Armand at Northwestern. Have you heard, heard, heard my name tossed around? And that day, I immediately went from booking zero meetings and booked three meetings on that day. And I've used that in every single SaaS job I've ever had moving forward. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Very good approach. So what happened after insurance then? So after started selling insurance, initially I made the horrible mistake of picking Nick as a co-founder to, let me write that one down, this two for two right there, <laughs> right? Uh, to start a vending machine company to sell nutrition supplements, which was an amazing ride. We did that for, for about two years. Company went up and down like many companies do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I took a slight 
divvy into the world of venture capital and corporate strategy, so not a traditional sales background. And and meanwhile, I was talking Nick to go into sales. I was like, Nick, you're doing this weird job where you're managing grocery store chains. And he was a district manager driving around, making sure that the, the random people were restocking the apples. And I'm like, dude, you should be in sales. He goes into sales. He absolutely blows it out, makes way more money than me. And he's like, hey, now you should go into sales. And so I joined the world of SaaS sales, started as an AE at Carta. And then today, mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, I currently am the head of sales at a company called Pave. It's a Series B company backed by Andreessen Horowitz and Y Combinator. And I'm running a team of about 15 AEs right now. And what do you do? What's the product do? So uh, let, let's say that we're in the rather bizarre situation where we may be considering Nick for promotion. I have this number <laughs> two right there. Uh, and so the Did first I thing up, that I... Yeah, it's it's <laughs> come on, pick it up. And so that there's there may be this rare occasion where uh, I need to go through a promo cycle for Nick. And what ends up happening is I need to understand how much does Nick make, when were all of his last comp increases, how is he performing, how mm. much equity does he have, how long has he been with the company. And the problem is all of these things live in completely different systems. And so what you find is that these HR leaders are absolute spreadsheet wizards. Because right. every single comp review becomes this operational nightmare where they have to tie 17 pieces of information together for 1,000 employees. And so what PAVE does is we just integrate with every HR system in the world so you never have to run comp processes on spreadsheets ever again. Got it. All right. I like it. Um, well, so let me ask you guys both a question. Is uh, We'll start with Nick since and get you a chance to you know, add a tally to your score sheet. Is What's your most favorite President's Club story. Like actually attending a President's Club? He's yeah. never been there before. So That isn't an insult because all of the companies that I've been a part of, yeah, 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 well, but there's a reason because all the companies I've been a part of where I've actually qualified as being the number one rep have not been big enough to actually have uh-huh. a President's Club. So the one time that I didn't finish as number one on a team uh, it was my first year selling and they did have a president's club and I got to see all these people go to Rome and I'm like, next year, that's me next year. That's me. And then I ended up getting poached by another company. And, uh, so, so there was never a president's club, but Armand and I, uh, have been to Vegas together before. So I don't know. Well, maybe I, that I didn't get an insult in there, Armand. You're, you're you've got You've got an advantage on me. So let's hear about your president's club, Armand. Yeah, Armand. Oh, look at that. On, uh, I'll beat you to it. Unfortunately, I have also, believe it or not, never been to a president's club. And the reason for that is when I was at Carta, I was uh, the number one AE for a handful of quarters. And then I immediately went into running our SDR org and SDRs weren't eligible for president's club at the time. And so I was a sales leader. And so I didn't get to qualify there. And then I came to PAVE and I was sales rep number two and uh, top rep for a couple of quarters as well. And now I'm running the team. And Frankly, Andy, it's going to be on me to plan President's Club <laughs> next year. And so it's shocking that we have this pre- this podcast called 30 Minutes to President's Club, and neither of us have ever been to President's, President's Club, Club. Okay. or not. So may- right. maybe you've been there. Who knows? Uh, yeah, a long, long time ago. Yeah, I've mostly spent the bulk of my career startups were, yeah, they didn't have President's Club. Um, though my first job worked for a large computer company. Yeah, yeah, I made it. All the years that I was eligible to do it, except it wasn't President's Club. It was called Legion of Honor. Um, and each year we went, they had to add, give you a 
pin, like a lapel pin you wear with your suit, since we wore suits at those times, that had like another diamond on it. So if, or <laughs> cubic zirconium more likely. Um, but uh, yeah, they were pretty unexciting affairs for the most part. Uh, not very memorable. So what was sort of the inspiration to start the podcast then? And, and I guess the question is, is, is Presence Club still a big thing? Well, the reason that we started the show actually ties into the name, Andy, because Armand, you can see, sort of had an unconventional sales background where he got thrown into selling insurance. And the stuff that he picked up was from a random like partner just walking down the hall sure. giving him some advice. And How I was learned. sort of the same deal. Like my first job out of college, I was a regional manager for a grocery store. And Armand just told me, Nick, you'd be awesome at selling. You should do it. But it was one of those jobs where you get handed a, a list and a phone and they say, pick up the mm -hmm. phone. It makes you money. And so- mm -hmm. Both of us are pretty into personal development and professional development. And so um, I actually rode my bike to work at my first ever sales job. And mm -hmm. as a way to pass the time, I would listen to sales <laughs> podcasts. And there's a lot of really great sales podcasts out there. Um, but I found most of them fall into one of two camps. The first is they talk about a ton of really high level things like, you know, you got to sell value and sell the vision and get on the same side of the table as a customer, which are all true. But as a new salesperson, I'm like, okay, well, how does that inform what actually comes out of my mm -hmm. mouth when somebody picks up the phone? Mm -hmm. um, the other end of the spectrum where there were these podcasts where they would go really, really deep with great salespeople, and you'd get a couple nuggets here or there, but it was like a two-hour episode, and my bike ride, unfortunately, was not two hours. Otherwise, my quads would have just been fried. So Armand and I started talking about like the different podcasts we were listening to, and flash forward, we're a little bit deeper into our sales career, and we thought, okay... What if we created a podcast that was extremely value dense? We record with guests and we only talk about things that salespeople can do, say, or write that very day. And then when there's answers that like don't get that, we end mm -hmm. up chopping it down. We record with guests. We recorded with you for almost an hour and the show ended up being 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's actually been really, really impactful. Uh, a sign of how much crap I was talking about? <laughs> no, no, no. It was good. We do that with every guest. Um <laughs> What's been cool about the show is people ask me about, oh man, you must be such a great salesperson because of it. I'm like, I have gotten much, much better because literally every single week I get an opportunity to ask real questions to people who are much, much smarter than me. I can say, Andy, I have a deal that I'm like sort of struggling with. What the heck would you do here? And it's helpful for the audience, but it's literally me just getting coached every single week, basically by very smart salespeople. I don't know, Armand, what do you think? Yeah, it's originally, it frankly started as this, I, I was looking for a way to expand my network. And I was always, a, I was not the best networked person in the world. <laughs> and so I went to the, the chief HR officer of Carta at the time. And I was like, hey, like, how did you go about knowing all these people in the venture space and every HR leader in the world? And he was like, hey, go and, and ask the best sales leader you can find every single week for like a coffee. Because <laughs> these networking events, they just suck. Like right. the people you want to meet, they're not there. And just go do that. And in the back of my mind, I also always had this itch to say like, hey, a lot of sales podcasts out there don't have like those raw tactics that we're looking for. And so I was like, what if we did both? What if I literally hit up every single kick-ass sales leader we can find in the world and say, hey, come and talk to us for 30 minutes. And then we just flipped on a recorder. We put some structure around it and we went deep into tactics. We'd become the best sellers out there. We'd also get to meet amazing people. And we think people would like it a decent amount. And, you know, next thing push comes to shove it. Right. Ended up turning out pretty okay. Yeah. 
Well, I think that I tell people, yeah, doing a podcast is like the most selfish thing I've ever done because, to your point precisely, as I've talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of really smart people. Well, I'm sorry we can't deliver. Oh, one of us can. Well, we'll see. We'll see, right? Yeah, well, so whose who's ledger does that go on? So <laughs> let's get practical because I know that's what you guys like to do. And one of the things we had chatted about beforehand about talking about was uh, discussing how to run a halfway decent discovery call. And I thought maybe we'd change that to say how do we run a really excellent discovery call instead of a halfway decent one. So um, let's start with definitions. What's a discovery call? All righty. A discovery call is a call that is intended not to showcase all of the features and the functionalities and this and the that's of what you can do, but rather try to figure out what they could do or they could what they could possibly want to do. In other words, you're largely trying to understand their problems. But here's the thing. People tend to interpret that as interrogating people with questions, and that is also not what a discovery call is, is a good discovery call at the end should feel like you have a very good, strong sense of what their problems are, and the customer should have a good sense of, hey, I think I can solve these problems in a couple of different ways with these guys. Okay. Is it a single call? It is well, not. It's a continuous process. Nick, what, what do you think about that? Well, it doesn't ever stop. I mean, discovery doesn't ever stop. But I think if you look at most salespeople, the way that their process works and the way that customers buy is they want to have a conversation for the most part before just getting dumped on by software. And I think the issue is people understand at a basic level that a discovery call requires both parties to do a little bit of discovery, mm -hmm. but they over-index towards, they hear, oh, okay, I've got two ears and one mouth. That means I need to listen way more than I talk. And then they just pepper somebody with question, 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 question. And so Andy, you hit request a demo on my company's website. You show up to a meeting and I say, I don't have a demo for you, but I've got a lot of questions. Tell me about your business. I ask you 47 questions in a 36 minute call because I'm not watching the clock. Now you're late to your one-on-one -on -one with your boss and you hate me. And you're like, I don't want to deal with this person ever again. They might be able to help out, but I have no idea what Nick's company does because he just asked me questions. And so in my mind, a good discovery call has a couple key elements to it that a lot of people miss. First is just handling logistics. I feel like you have to put the, cu the, the customer in a comfortable place. And what I mean by that is let them know that you know how to play the game, i.e. you're not going to keep them six minutes over and make them late to their boss, boss meeting. The second thing you got to do in the beginning of the call is say, hey, I've got some questions for you. I'm sure you have some questions for me. You're the customer. You're more important. What would you like to accomplish in today's meeting? And when you ask that question, they will just start talking at you for six minutes straight because they want to brain dump everything that's going on with their situation. And now you don't have to ask your checklist of questions. And from there, you might have certain areas you want to put a pinpoint in. But instead of you showing up and peppering them with a bunch of questions, let the other person lay out their agenda first. Let them know you're going to watch the clock. And then you can start asking some questions. I feel like people are forgetting that, you know, having a conversation actually is a really good way to sell. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the buyer doesn't look at that interaction. They don't go into it thinking, oh, this is a discovery call, right? They go into it thinking it's a conversation. Right. They go in thinking, okay, I'm dealing with an issue here. I think Armand's company might be able to help, but I'm not totally sure. I want to understand, like, they go in with an agenda of things that they want to get out of that call. And I think so many buyers are used to really bad salespeople who, like, 
we recently bought uh, something for our podcast and we talked to a couple different vendors and the way that it worked was Armand and I were on a meeting together and he said, Nick, I need you to go look at a couple different vendors to buy X, go check them out. Here's what we want to understand. Armand's a big fan of making spreadsheets. And so he said, here's sort of the columns that I want to mm-hmm. understand so we can evaluate these different vendors. And so great on my plate, I got dumped at least 90 minutes worth of work because I had to go to talk to three different people. That's three different discovery calls, but there was specific information that I was seeking out. And so, yes, I want to, I want to learn about different ways to do things. I want people to blue ocean sell me. I want to have conversations with prospective vendors, but I had key information that if I went back to Armand the next week and was like, ah, sorry, man, I didn't figure out the pricing for these two because I, I couldn't get in and I couldn't get the SKUs. Like, he's like, well, dude, you didn't do your job. So I think we forget sometimes we actually have to help our buyer do their job. Doesn't mean you don't sell. Doesn't mean you've got to like give them a full quote on the very first call. But oftentimes we stand in the way of the buyer accomplishing things in the most effective way possible. And our job is to, my, my old boss always said this to me, do the work for the customer. Yeah. So summarize, what would be the buyer's job? In your, in your opinion. Well, that buyer has a problem and they might have more problems than they know about. Their job is to solve said problem and find a way to solve said problem. It might not be buying your thing. It might not be doing anything at all. But if you're talking to a CFO, that CFO actually has a job description that they're trying to accomplish and something may be getting in the way of them accomplishing that job to the best of their abilities. Your job as a seller is to help them figure out like the best way to solve it, which might not be with your thing. Oftentimes it is. Oftentimes you can help uncover other areas that you can mm-hmm. help with. But um, I think we stand in the way of the buyer too much. What do you think, Armand? Yes. You know what's funny is, Andy, I don't think anyone has ever asked me what is the buyer's job. And I'm glad Nick was answering there because it gave me some time to think about what I'm supposed to say here. Because- <laughs> well, I've got my answer too, so go ahead. Yeah. And so it, thinking about it a little bit more is my desired job for the buyer is for them to just openly share with me what is their situation today is there a problem is there not a problem and frankly tell me if there's a yes or no throughout the process but where most sales reps screw up is they actually get in the way of that buyer's job by creating an environment where people are afraid to say no to you and so my job to enable their job is to create an environment where buyers feel comfortable telling me no. They feel Mm -hmm. comfortable telling me uh, about their problems. And frankly, the biggest thing is the best sellers are able to run a sales process where the buyers almost forget that this is a salesperson, and that allows the buyers to do their job. Right. So here's why, so my turn. So here's what I think buyer's job is. Is buyer's job is to quickly gather and make sense or understand the information they need to make a purchase decision with the least investment of their time and attention possible. That was a better definition than us, Andy. Did you prepare I, that one? Well, you know, I'm, yeah, that's not off the cuff. That's, a, that's my definition. Um, but you think about it, to the point you guys made is sellers get in the way of that. If they really understood that's, that's what the buyer was trying to achieve in this process they're going through, then they might approach it with a different mindset. Well, I mean, to that point, So let's say, for example, that you're running a discovery call and you go 10, 15 minutes in and that buyer does a good job of revealing their situation, their problems, what they're looking to solve and what they want in those first 10 to 15 minutes because they're being open with you. Mm -hmm. What happens is this magical, not so magical moment at the 15 minute mark where the average seller thinks, shoot, I'm at 15 minutes. 
I've gotten some really good stuff in Discovery, and I think I'm supposed to keep asking questions here. I think I have to keep ripping them with Discovery questions so that my gong talk-to-listen ratio looks good and all that stuff, <laughs> right? We say ring DNA on the show, but yeah, go ahead. Ring DNA, yeah. sorry. Uh, and we've seen a lot of amazing amazing reps start to move to this new transition where it's not like I have to rip you with 700 discovery questions before I show you pricing, software, what have you. What you're starting to see is you're starting to see reps get really, really good at these five-minute Harbor Tour demos, right? Where you get to the problem quickly mm-hmm. and then you use that five-minute Harbor Tour demo after you discover that problem to pull them into that next call and give them, Andy, to your point, just enough information so that they're like, okay, I feel like I can solve this problem with you. But what most reps will do is they try to rip them and question fatigue them for the next 10 minutes and then use the last five for next steps. And the buyers are like, shoot, I'm failing at my job, which to your point is figuring out if there's a problem that I can solve or if I can make a purchasing decision as soon as possible. We actually elongate our sales cycles purposely. Why do you think? Because we've been taught that discovery is what wins deals. We've been taught that the more discovery I do, the higher chance I have of winning, which is true, but it's misinterpreted. The more you understand, like if you understand- The more you understand, yes. If you you had a lens into your buyer's brain and you were a mind reader, you would have a much better chance of winning deals. Well, the closest that we can get to becoming a mind reader is by, by talking with the buyer and having them share things, like having them verbalize what's going on in their head. Well, Armand, you know, why don't you just try to do this in-house? Well, then Armand's answer to that informs why, okay, this is why they're not going to try doing it in-house. He's defending that position. Mm-hmm. But until I have a mind-reading ability, I have to ask questions. The problem is we interpret more discovery equals more wins as I need to ask more questions and I shouldn't be sharing stuff. I need to ask, 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 ask. Tell me about your budget and your timeline and who else is involved in this decision and what are your success criteria? And we start peppering the buyer with those, but there's a rule of reciprocity, which is a, it's it's like a thing in human nature is if I share, you share, I share, you share. The second the conversation is totally one-sided, me mm-hmm. just asking you questions. And we also get taught the person who asks the questions controls the conversation, which is also true, but that gets completely botched. We're just peppering them with 800 questions in the 36 minute call. And to Armand's point, what you can do is at select times in that discovery call is, I think you called it doing a playback, Armand, where you say, okay, well, you just told me you're struggling with A, B, and C. You know, a lot of our other law firms have decided to use X feature of our thing, and it's helped them with this, this, and this. I don't know if you feel like that's something worth talking a little bit about when we do our demo later this week. Now the buyer is actually going to share it. Like you've shared a little bit about how you can help. You've shared a relevant story and you've still asked a question to continue the conversation going forward. Problem is most people won't ever put that stake of credibility in the ground and the buyer comes away again thinking, I don't know what Armand's company does. Yeah. I mean, so well, a couple of things that you, that you bring up. So what what's the objective of discovery in your minds? Oh, that, that, that is, that is a, it's a deep question. I think it's to get to a place of mutual understanding for both people to figure out, can we help them or not? Can they help me or not? Keyword there being mutual understanding. Mm-hmm. I want to as deeply as possible understand their situation and whether or not we can help. And I want them as deeply as possible to understand our ability to help them. Two sides of the same coin. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a key point you bring up is that, that, and you've brought it up several times, since that 
yeah, discovery is not a, a one-way street. It's it's a bilateral thing that happens. Uh, so it's it's interactive. It's not an interrogation as you talked about. But the understanding, I think, is really really key. Um, Armand, what's your take on it? Honestly, I was going to say something pretty similar. So I could try to be creative and all, but it's sort of how I describe it too. And I think that's generally right. I mean, the only thing I might add, Nick, to what you talked about is is that it, through my experience, well, I found that there's always one thing that's more important than everything else in the buyer's mind. And so I look at discovery as saying, well, my job is, that, is, is to listen to understand what's the most important thing to a buyer and how I can help them get that. If that's the outcome of a discovery, then I feel like, okay, I'm on, a, I'm on the road to success. Armand, you have an opinion on that, like with demos, for example. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens You're is... playing that like, game. Uh, I know, it's great. Uh, great discovery question there, Armand. Yes. Well, I know one of the things that I've seen you talk about is like people will show up on a demo and they understand what the most important thing is. And like in a competitive situation in particular, you don't have to win on every single battlefront. There might be five things that matter to the customer, four of them that... Yeah, they're all right. And one that's like like the number one thing. And you might lose to a bunch of competitors on the four, but if you win on the one, Absolutely. you're actually gonna win the deal. And so Armand, did that did that help answer your question? I'm not really sure I appreciate if it did. It. I was using a TED question. Tell me about uh, it. Explain. Yeah. Describe to me a little bit more. But bring it full circle. The idea with a discovery call is every given solution, you know, there there are a handful of like big business impact problems you can solve, but really I mean, there might be 5, 10, 15 solu- th- different things that you could solve for a buyer that could be potentially on your table. Your goal of a good discovery call is to figure out which of those 15 you really want to triple down on so that when you show a demo, you understand like, hey, these are these 10 other ancillary things that I know they don't care about. These are the five that they really care about. And then in the back of your head, you know these are the two that our competitors aren't good at. And those are the ones that I'm going to hit hard on while making sure that we check the boxes on the other three. That are important to them. Yeah, I mean the the last part of that I think is you have to add in is not only what's the most important thing, but who is it most important to? Because you're gonna find that the things that are most important generally tend to be most important to the people that have the biggest influence on the decision. Exactly right. And what's tough is with the way that buying cycles are going today is a lot of people say, oh, get access to power, get access to power, do top-down selling, but the reality is a lot of sales cycles aren't being done that way because the people at the bottom are actually doing the research, requesting Mm -hmm. the demos, and they're the ones who are informing the decision because people are giving their team agency to make decisions. So what I find the best sellers are able to do is they're able to run a couple different discovery planes per se because they know these are the 15 problems. They know the process problems matter to the frontline workers that you have to win their trust, but then they're really good once they get access to power to switching that up and saying, okay, the technicalities of integrations, budgeting, and approvals are not going to be what a an executive cares about, which is going to be the vision of how they're going to retain employees and attract mm-hmm. the best talent in the world. Right. Well, I think you also find with a lot of a lot of uh, systems these days is that you know the decision required just doesn't raise to the level of the C-suite or executive level, um, and so if you're focused on top-down selling. You sometimes get yourself in a problem where <laughs> I had this with one one CEO that I was working with as a, a client where this vendor kept pushing to get in to see him. And and this vendor's 
products that already sort of been specced into their their business plan for what they're going to go do going forward. But and he, the vendor had been told that, but he had been trained that he had to talk to the CEO. And so he talked to the CEO. He finally got in, and I was sitting in the meeting. And the CEO said, "You know, hmm, I'm not sure why I'm involved in this conversation, but since you're here, I've got some opinions." And it turned out the opinions didn't work favorably for that particular vendor, and they end up losing the deal. But if he had sold to the people that were actually going to be the actual decision makers for it, and had been satisfied with that, uh, he would have had a deal. You can oversell, is the point. You can sell at a level where you don't need to for every product. 100%. Exactly right. So how do you prepare yourself for a discovery call? This one is, it's definitely going to vary on the type of industry you're in. But the, the general premise here is there are things that I need to know that are part of the doctor's checklist. And then there are things that help me formulate my point of view on where I might start. And so things like the doctor's checklist, for example, might be, I need to know what the company does. I need to know how many employees they have. I need to know who am I talking to? What persona am I having? But things that help you formulate your point of view are, hey, what's what's this person's role in the organization if I poke around their LinkedIn? Uh, let me look at their earnings call and see, how's this company been doing overall? When was the last round of funding they raised? Who mm-hmm. are their investors, right? And oftentimes what sellers forget is that second piece is actually far more important than the check the box doctor's questions because inevitably what happens in today's world, especially if you don't sell for someone like Salesforce, maybe you sell for Nick's company Ping or you sell for Pave where a lot of buyers haven't really heard of you before. They might be just be showing up to a demo to figure it out or sure. look around the room. You need to be able to come in and realize that, hey, some buyers to your point, Andy, might have done some research on you, but there might be other buyers that come in and they're like, I don't really know what you do. What can you help me with? And if you just pepper them with open-ended questions Mm -hmm. without at least having a sense of where you might start based on what you see about their org, that's how you end up in discovery fatigue. And that's how you end up with buyers saying like, hey, will you show me some software already? (laughs) Is when you don't, when you can't actually raise any problems from them. And when the way that you raise problems is by doing appropriate research on the triggers that make people buy and coming in with a hypothesis that is loosely held at the beginning mm-hmm. of a call. Right. I mean, when I when I go into a discovery call, in addition, I mean, maybe some of the similar things that Armand talked about, but like, I want to understand, like, how big is the law firm I'm going to talk to? Who is the person that I'm talking to? What's their background? Have they posted anything on LinkedIn recently? Because if they just ran a marathon two days prior, like... Mm-hmm. I'm going to say something like, well, you must be exhausted from running a marathon. And now you want to add talking to a salesperson on top of that. Gosh, um, like I wanted, I want to prove to them that I did a little bit of research. Um, to Armand's point, you want to go in with like a thesis, because if you get to the point where they're like, I don't really know anything about your company. Like, how can you help? You can't just be like, oh, Fred freeze up. Mm-hmm. You want to have a, a, a point of view on, well, I read this about you guys. I saw this. We've helped some other similar organizations do X. I don't know if that sounds even remotely interesting to you or not. And now you actually have a place to start a conversation. If you go in without a a sense of how you could help them and you only go in hoping to discover, you're going to come up short sometimes. Sometimes you have to um, almost seed the conversation with something like that. Yeah, I I think the sellers that go in just to pepper questions, you know, sort of fall in this category we see with a lot of sellers is that they they think they know going Mm -hmm. in. Right, they think they know what the buyer is concerned about. They think they know what the buyer's uh, answers are going to be to questions because you know they're just listening to respond. You know, once they're through talking, I ask that next question. 
Um, and so really, I think part of the preparation is you have to sort of prep yourself to be open-minded and challenge the assumptions as what you think you know. Well, and then in the conversation, actually, you want to challenge those assumptions. Armand, you and I were talking about this at dinner the other day where a lot of my selling conversations now, I'm I'm poking holes in almost their ability or desire to want to make the deal happen. Like I said earlier, like, well, Armand, I mean, I understand the problem, but like, why don't you guys just try to solve this in-house? The word why can be a double-edged sword. The word why forces the other person to defend their position. And normally you never want to put the buyer on the defensive. Like you don't want to say, well, why do you do it that way? That's mm-hmm. implying, okay, it's wrong. And now they're going to cling to, well, this is why we have our process and defend it. But when it comes to change, I actually want them to defend their reason for changing. And so um, why, like, I mean, I imagine there's a bunch of other things going on in your business today beyond just like fixing time tracking for your attorneys. Like, why is this a priority right now? I'm curious. When I ask that question, now I understand a lot more about the, the reality of it. And so I think often when I'm having discovery calls, like I want to give the I want to give them an opportunity to have an out as much as possible, which sounds um like almost backwards. You're like, why would you ever want to let the customer out of the deal? Well, the fact of the matter is you don't control whether or not a human buys something. Right. What exactly. you do control is understanding the full situation. And so actually when you ease up a bunch and you tell them, look, you might see the demo and decide this thing is the worst thing that you've seen since canned bread. If that's the case, totally fine. You're never going to hurt my feelings. Just let me know. Because in reality, yes, of course, I'm hoping that they want the demo, but I'm biased. Sure. When I go from a discovery call to a demo, usually the way that I'll close it, if they're not already saying, I'd really like to see it now, because sometimes you do have to give it a little push to get to that next step. Um, I say, well, you've shared a lot with me and I'm a little bit biased because I work for Ping, but I think if you saw it, you'd be able to make your own judgment about whether or not this thing could help you. What do you think? And when you call out that you're a biased seller, which we all are, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, actually the buyer lowers their defenses a little bit. It's okay if you don't like it. You're never going to hurt my feelings. I wasn't the guy who built the software. I'm the guy who's going to show it to you. All of a sudden, like, okay, this guy isn't trying to jam something down my throat. And it's a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a great approach. Armand, what do you think? I forget what the original question was. That was it. <laughs> I went on a tear. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Boy, we were talking about preparation for, for discovery. But, I mean, I, I think, yeah, Nick's point about how do you uh, lower the buyer's defenses. Because, I mean, one of the problems with discovery is that sellers go in with the assumption that if they ask a question, it's going to be answered fully and truthfully. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a false assumption. Right. If you don't establish some form of credibility and trust with the buyer, they're never going to be as forthcoming as you need them to be. Well, Andy, no buyer ever answers a question uh, fully because if you just ask one question, you don't get the full answer. Like, example, sure. can you tell me about your timeline for making a decision? The buyer will respond to that question. I'm not even crazy about that question. I think there's no reason to ask it. But if you ask that question, it's very on the nose, the buyer would give you an answer, right? Well, we're going to look at a couple different products. We're going to look at the price. You know, we're going to put together a spreadsheet and we're going to make a decision. We're going to also talk to some references. Okay, great. If I just end there and we move on to the next thing, they haven't fully answered what I want to know. Like there's the question that you ask and then there's the intent behind the question of what you're trying to get. And so I think you have to know, like, you know, I remember my first ever sales job, my, my boss would be like, all right, well, like, 
did they tell you what their timeline was? And I'm like, well, I asked, and this is what they told me, but you've got to ask those questions again and again and again throughout your conversations. Like Mm -hmm. if you just ask questions about timing and criteria and other stuff that you really need to know if you want to win the deal and you ask it just once, um, you're not going to get complete answers Two, those things change. Like, because, because sometimes when we're buying complex software or services, um, we start to uncover much more complexity into the process and those things change. And so I always want to be pulse checking. Like, are they happy with what they've been seeing or unhappy? If they're unhappy, I don't want to hold them. I don't want to keep them captive. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they still feeling like this is on track? Is this still something that's a priority? Um, are there other people who now are going to be involved in that decision? All of a sudden, Armand says, Nick, I really want to talk to some vendors too because I just talked to a buddy who bought one of those things last month. You've got to be pulse checking throughout the deal. Well, Andy, what, what you were mentioning is you know, you've, you've got these buyers in there. They're not going to answer your questions in completion. And part of the reason is not a lot of buyers know how to buy. And a lot of buyers certainly don't know how to be sure. sold. right? And a lot of buyers don't know how to be sold for your specific product. right? And so you can start with open-ended questions. Tell me about your priorities. Why'd you take the call? What problem are you looking to solve? And an educated buyer will answer those questions in the fullest, right? But once you find those buyers who don't know a lot about what you want to do, or they don't even know what problems they really have because Mm -hmm. they're latent problems, you need to get good at a couple different things. So instead of asking just open-ended questions, you can start to ask typically questions where you can demonstrate credibility and say, hey, typically when I'm talking to someone like you, I see things like X, Y, and Z. I'm curious how those things are resonating. And mm-hmm. now what you're doing is you're pattern matching with them and you're giving them a sense of like, hey, I've seen this before, right? And they go like, yeah, I am an A, B, or C, or maybe I'm not one of those, but this jogs my memory on that one thing, right? Another thing that is really good is people always say, oh, stories sell, stories sell, and I want to get my buyers to tell stories. But you can't always get them to tell stories because they don't have this bank of stories in their head that are just sitting there. And right. so what you can do instead is you can give a story in return for an area where you would normally want a story. And then oftentimes, if you have some good rapport with them, they will give a story in return after you share a story of your own. And so it's this trading of words, stories, and options that start to guide the buyer down the path versus just the peppering of endless open-ended questions, hoping that they give you the answer. Yeah, no, I I agree. Good answers, good answers. All right, uh, guys, we're sort of running out of time, but uh, this has been a great discussion about discovery. So, if people want to find out more about the podcast or connect with you guys individually, what's the best way to do that? Well, I do accept all LinkedIn connection requests, except if you put one of three things in the message. One, if you're trying to sell me Bitcoin, I will decline. Two, if you've got more leads for me and you want to sell me more leads, I don't accept those ones. And three, if your name is Armand Farouk, I won't accept the connection request. Oh, but other than that, I accept all LinkedIn requests. The last, I love talking the to last, the last word almost, except Armand's talking last. Go ahead, Armand. Ah, okay. So uh, if you would like to connect with me on LinkedIn, the first thing you'll do is you'll go to my LinkedIn profile and then you will look at the number of followers that Nick has and you will notice that it is lower than me. And so you'll realize that I do connect with the people who want to sell me Bitcoin and leads. And so if you're in the business of selling Bitcoin or leads, please, I would like to buy some of your Dogecoin, but I would really like it if you just liked some of my posts on LinkedIn. There's only one of me. And then, of course, uh, we have this cool podcast, 30 Minutes to President's Club. I would suggest going and listening to the episode with Andy. It was a really good one. Oh, thank you, guys. Well, it's been fun having you here. Let's do it again. Awesome. Andy, you're the man. Thanks for having us on. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. 
And I want to thank my guest, Nick Sigalski and Armand Farouk, for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in, a minute, in less than a minute, actually, as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.